So welcome to our second class on starting from within, on examining intention. Yeah, and if the hearing devices aren't working, sometimes they don't get charged, so, okay. So I wanted to start with um, a little review of the homework, or the reflections that you had during the week, which are, of course, optional, but do help to uh, solidify the material and, and kind of deepen your understanding. So how was it to if anyone did it, to work with um, metta as intrinsic respect, a sense of worth, intrinsic worth, or whatever other things you were experiencing this week. Does anyone have any comments to share? Yeah, Carol. The meditation was very powerful for me last week. I mean, just memorable. And I had an opportunity on Saturday to, um, I was very anxious and uh, moving quickly early Saturday morning, and my husband, who'd been sick for over a week, was helping me. And he was moving very slowly, and I I almost wanted to just go do it myself, but I um, accepted his help and found myself, you know, kind of like getting inside irritable and anxious and stuff. But then I would stop and uh, breathe from my heart and soften my body and kind of relate to his heart. We were in the car, and um, so he was close to me, and, and it really worked. Uh, and um, to just uh, act from my heart. Even though I was distracted by emotions, and um, it was and it was easy to do, and so then throughout the week I found myself in conversation with somebody and go, oh yeah, wait a second, I'm gonna come from here uh-huh. and and just meet that person there, and it was very worthwhile. Great, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Heidi. I found that conversation last week about the concept of being at ease as part of metta very useful. And when I focused that, especially, I mean, I've, I've been ahead of really busy, sometimes stressful week, and focusing on remembering to, yeah, to give myself permission to be at ease in the midst of stress and busyness and to wish that for others was, was really a, a meaningful way of thinking about metta. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Any other comments? Did anyone read the Suchito chapter on metta? Yeah, how did you like that? Did you find anything useful in there? Different take on it, right, is the dissolution of the subject-object dichotomy. I thought it was a very good approach. of the you know, being at ease with whatever comes up. Um, the discussion about that, that when the when obstacles appear and or the opposite of what the meta, whatever that is, to to meet that and see that as truly an opportunity or you know for information about the obstacles that are there and to in a way meet that with ease. That was For me, it came in. I had this dream that was just, you know, full of the obstacles. Mm-hmm. So I could, you know, work with it that way. Yeah, one thing we discover, or maybe we already knew <laughs> when doing metta practice, is that you'll run into what isn't metta. <laughs> yeah just because that's the nature of practice, is that when we're trying to cultivate something, we set our intention on that, then uh, it exposes all dimensions of that. You know, you see the ways where you already have metta, you see the ways where you really don't. (laughs) 
that's that's the lens you start using. And so this is actually it's worth saying this explicitly so that people don't get discouraged. You know, sometimes that comes up when we try to cultivate and then we see the opposite there. We say, oh, well, forget it. But actually that's good. It means you've got the lens in place. <laughs> and so you're in the position where you can actually develop that quality. If you're not aware of it or its opposite, you can't really. Yeah, I'm sorry to say a lot of this path is about clearing obstacles. <laughs> in case you didn't know yet. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know any other way to do it, actually. Because that's the reason we're not free. <laughs> is there are obstacles. <laughs> All right, any other, any other comments? Yeah, Enrique. Um, at the beginning, when we, uh, last, last Friday, I carried with me uh, the uh, meditation, and when I arrived home, I read text, but then, um, like so many other people, I, after the holidays, I'm back at the institution, and um, I was very anxious about um, coming back and find, you know, working with um, some colleagues, there have been some conflicts in the past, but I felt that um, the uh, Early on, because of the meditations, I was able to practice the metta and be just very, very patient and at the same time appreciative. I was able to work with, cultivate the whole idea of worth, hmm. the worth, and it was, it was a reciprocal worth and a confidence on my part that I could find ways to be more appreciative and understanding with what these people are doing and how they're, how they're contributing to, to my, you know, my well-being also. So it was, it, it, that was very powerful because I, in the past, I had some um, difficulties um, in that uh, in that area. Yeah. And um, so my colleagues, they're, they're not as fortunate as I am. They're not in a hundred percent contracts, and so I was very, you know, understanding with all that, and even in my emails towards them. So I was, uh, I was really pleased to see how how um, how um, natural that came to me after. We had that talk last week. Great. Yeah. And this is, everything I've heard is exactly the basis that we're working on, is that when we, when we start from within, then it's easier on the outside um, compared to trying to make everything happen outside, but maybe not, not starting as close in. Foundation really matters. All right. Um, anything else? Yeah, Patty. Since um, bringing it about meta, but I still um, am really grateful for the comment that you had made about how sometimes in setting an intention, you have this idealized goal. So here's where we are, here's the goal, and there's a big gap that needs to be overcome. I mean, that's common. We created a world right there. <laughs> so your, your uh, idea that like, I think your example is generosity rather than have this ideal, just if I want to be more generous, you just do an act of generosity now, right? So I kind of use that lens in a couple of situations and it just made life easy. Yeah, because you've done, you've done what you had to do this moment. What, right. what else could you do? Right. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you, glad you saw that practically. Okay, well, so this week, um, metta still remains operative, but we move on to uh, add the second of the three wise intentions that I mentioned last time. Um, so the first is the intention of non-ill will, right, which we talked about as metta. And so this time we have the intention of non-cruelty. And the positive form of that that is usually talked about is compassion. And so what is it that we're talking about? Of course, the, um, you know, we don't like to think of ourselves as cruel, and we're not cruel people. There aren't cruel people, there are cruel actions, right? But even then, we, like, we don't like to think that we do cruelty. And in a you know, maybe in a dramatic sense of that we, we don't. Um, 
But the intention is probably there in our mind when we consider that this is related to the desire to do harm. So it's the uh, the arising of a desire to destroy, to attack, or to hurt, basically. And it can be relatively innocent, like your computer isn't working and you have a momentary desire to throw it out the window, <laughs> you know? What is that? Or a sense of, ah, I'm going to put my fist through the wall, or I'm going to, you know, this recipe isn't working, I'm going to just throw it away. You know, there's a sense, right, that kind of, uh, um, you know, maybe that's not an intention to harm a person. But we also have little ways that we are passive-aggressive, for example, with other people. We're not really intending to actively harm them like they would, you know, know that that was happening. But we have these little digs that we do to people, right? This is the root of this desire to do harm. One-upsmanship, or putting someone down, or dismissing them in kind of an eloquent way, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, there are professions actually where you're supposed to do this, right? So um, you have to be aware of that tendency in the mind. And so, uh, as we mentioned last time, um, there's this play in Indian languages where if we say that something is not there, then that implies that its opposite is there. Um, and so, if we have an not intention not to harm, or non-intention of harm, that would be the intention to help, or to relieve, or to alleviate suffering, which is the intention of compassion. So today we'll focus on, on compassion as a study of non-cruelty. But just be aware um, that that's what we're talking about. And if you do see that little tendency toward wanting to do harm, wanting to, you know, that just know that that's what the root of that is. It's the one that's countered by compassion. So, I kind of like the um, qualities of compassion that are described in the um, Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training course, if any of you had a chance to take that. Um, They were defined by Thupten Jinpa, who is the Dalai Lama's principal translator and the leader of the CCT project. And these four steps, if you will, um, that comprise compassion are, one is awareness of suffering. So you have to be in contact with suffering in some way. Um, compassion is more specific, in a sense, than loving kindness, which is kind of you know, pervasive. And then if there's suffering, compassion can be activated. So there's awareness of suffering. We have to be emotionally moved by the suffering. So there has to be actually an opening to the suffering in some way. And this is a step actually where most of us do it partially. There is um, some ability to open to suffering. Anybody who's made it to a meditation hall uh, has some ability. And, uh, but there, there are probably, for all of us, areas where we're not quite willing to open. And so that's an interesting step to look at. And then the third is the wish to see the relief of that suffering. So that's really the non-cruelty. And the, and the sense of, oh, you know, I, it hurts to see that, and I wish there were some way it weren't happening. And then an actual responsiveness in terms of doing something or being ready to, you know, being willing to act to alleviate that suffering. And if that sounds complicated, don't worry, they all, you know, they can happen quite quickly in a moment. We don't have to sit and analyze, do I have each of these four? But it's just nice to be aware that those are the dimensions. Empathy and compassion are not the same in this understanding. Empathy is feeling another person's pain. So there's the awareness of the pain and kind of the opening to it, and to the point where you feel it yourself. And you know they describe these mirror neurons, right, where when we see something, we can have an analogous response. People who are very sensitive, it can be very literal. Like, you know, if you see somebody um, trip and bump their shin on the curb, they might actually feel pain in their own shin. That's possible. Um, but it can also be that if we see someone crying, 
we feel sadness, you know, we feel deep sadness. And it's, a, it's an understanding that I could be there too. You know, there's an empathetic response of, of, this is a human thing, I've felt this also. In some way we can empathize with what's going on. However, if that is all we do, if that is what we do all day, <laughs> opening to suffering everywhere, we tend to get overwhelmed by that. We tend to get what's called uh, empathy fatigue or burnout. And people who work in caregiving professions who only use empathy, who only feel the other person's pain uh, and sort of don't get beyond that, um, they suffer over the long run. You see this a lot, actually. And even, you know, even if we're not in that profession, inadvertently it can happen if our partner is suffering or you know, our co- we're in a stressful co-worker situation and we're just absorbing all the pain from that. Um, people really have a hard time um, handling that. So this is not compassion, actually, because we are not taking care of our suffering in that situation. We've forgotten ourselves in the mix and we're allowing ourselves to be dragged down by it. So compassion takes a step farther in two dimensions. Uh, one of them is that we actually at, want to relieve the suffering. So if we're just absorbing it all the time and feeling it and feeling it, um, we might forget that we can relieve it <laughs> in some way. We can um, respond in some way. And that doesn't mean just react, which is often what we're doing, but you know, respond in some way that helps the root of the problem or connects with the other person or helps them see a different perspective. There's a, uh, some sophistication in offering alleviation of that suffering. Empathy can be pretty passive if it's a biological neuron response. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're engaging intentionally with the suffering, and compassion has that component to it. It's an intention. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today. I'm not sure that empathy is an intention, and so that's why it can overwhelm us over time. And then, even more importantly, the other separation between empathy and compassion is that compassion does not identify with that pain. So I see somebody suffering, I feel their pain, I empathize, but I don't take it on. I don't don't somehow absorb it. There's a way to feel it without absorbing it. And this is disidentification. This is, um, uh, we call it in Christianity, like holy equanimity or something like that. We don't use the word equanimity. Um, Holy detachment. That's what um, Christian chaplains use. And so it's not detachment like separation or pushing away or not feeling what's going on, but feeling it and understanding that it's not yours. It's coming from them. Um, And you can feel it because it's there, but you don't take it on. And so we start to, actually Vante Gunaratana gives a wonderful example of this. He talks about firefighters. So firefighters are people who have decided intentionally to go and alleviate the problems of other people at at risk to themselves. So that's pretty compassionate. But they don't run into burning buildings willy-nilly. They bring good equipment. They have excellent training. They make a plan about how they're going to get in and get out, and they support each other as a team. Why? So that they will have the least damage to themselves, even though they're going into a fire. And we wouldn't want it any other way, would we, from our firefighters? So why do we think that we should run in and fight fires of the compassion that we're trying to do in the world willy-nilly, without protecting ourselves, without using mindfulness, without considering that this is not my pain, I don't need to take it on, even if I feel it? That's the same thing. Please protect yourself. Otherwise, we end up with burnout. And then we're really not effective. So, this is wisdom, right? Compassion is the most effective when it's combined with wisdom. The wisdom of disidentification, the wisdom of mindfulness, the wisdom of including myself in the whole mix. So it can get a little bit subtle, of course, because um, what happens is that if we go in and we have say we just have empathy and we feel the other person's pain as our pain, 
then we may, what, what it may look like on the outside is that we act to relieve it. So it looks like compassion, but we have to check internally. Our motivation might very well be that we're relieving our pain. You know, we, we go and we visit somebody who's in pain, we feel overwhelmed that they're in pain, and our response is to, to unhelpfully try to do something to stop that. You see it all the time in caregiver roles. People get busy, they um, uh, don't really connect with the person um, because they're so frenzied about trying to do something. They start panicking, which gets the other person upset, all because they're trying to relieve their pain, not the other person's pain. So um, we need to look carefully at how it is that we can actually help, and we need to develop the strength of mindfulness to be able to hold their pain in ourselves non-reactively so that we can act to actually relieve the pain. Ram Dass wrote an interesting book called um, How Can I Help? And it's about being in the social activist slash caregiving profession role. It's very old, it's from many decades ago. But it's basically a book about what it means to give real help as opposed to the help that isn't really help um, because we're not acting from compassion, from true compassion. For example, one highly effective way to be compassionate is actually just to be a listening presence, to just be there, and to be able to stand in another person's pain and not react to it helps the other person also not to panic about the pain that they're in. Yeah, So it requires a strong mindfulness to do that, but it's, it can be very, very effective to be in the presence of suffering without turning away, that is an act of relieving suffering, even though it feels like, but I have to do something. Maybe you don't. Maybe the most compassionate thing is just to be there, especially if you can't do anything. Hospice workers learn this. The person's dying. What are you going to do, really? So you just be there. So compassion works best when combined with wisdom. We'll see that later. We're going to do when we do the guided meditation. So a lot of compassion is about the willingness and ability to stay present with suffering. That's a pretty fair definition almost. It's not so much that we need to learn particular techniques to relieve suffering, although we can. Um, but having a lot of techniques in our mind I think is less useful than cultivating the ability to be with suffering and then the right thing to, to do will come. It will come in that moment rather than having an idea of a specific thing that we need to do. I'll give two examples from chaplaincy. Um, these are uh, just stories that I've heard, sort of teaching stories to chaplains. And they present a similar situation that has um, but a diff very different response, and both responses worked. So there is the story of a um, sort of a new chaplain who was going around the hospital, and he came to the bed of a man who was had terrible suffering. You know, he was just in a lot of pain and possibly dying, and his family situation wasn't good, and he just sort of spilled out this whole story because he felt safe in the presence of the chaplain who's sitting here listening to this, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, all this stuff I, that he's unloading on me, I can't do anything about most of that, you know? And so he, and he didn't exactly know what to do. He had his Bible and he had his, you know, all his ideas in his mind about things he could say or do, but what the man was describing, none of that was really going to be effective. Maybe the Bible, but, um, and so, sort of being attentive, what he found himself doing is that he just started crying as the chaplain. And the man eventually kind of stopped. He, he wasn't like sobbing and bawling, but he just let tears run down his cheeks. And the man in the bed um, slowly stopped his story. And he said, um, no one has ever really listened to all the things that that I was just saying, all of my problems. That's all I really wanted. Thank you. Oh, so simple. And then there's another 
story of a, um, this was a man who was a volunteer caregiver in the cancer ward because he himself had, was a cancer survivor and he had had one of his legs amputated from the cancer, but uh, he was so grateful and moved by this that he and became a cancer ward volunteer and he would go and sit with people. And there was a man with cancer who was unhappy about that and very bitter about his life and really unable to, unwilling to smile or speak or, and his family, I guess, was trying to get him to sing and there was no way that was going to happen and he was, you know, being very grouchy. And, you know, the situation was kind of tense and not resolving and the this spiritual caregiver, again, had this sense of, well, this is some family dynamic, I don't exactly want to interpose myself, but he was sitting there as part of the group. Um, and so he just tuned in to the situation of this poor, miserable man and his family trying to cheer him up, but he wasn't going for it. And he stood up spontaneously, he's got one plastic leg, and he started dancing. <laughs> And he just started dancing, and it must have looked very strange because he's sort of hopping because he can't put a lot of weight on the false leg. And he started dancing, sort of cavorting around the room, and the man in the bed just cracked a smile <laughs> and said, man, if you can dance, I can sing. <laughs> and started singing. Right? So these are very different responses to a situation of suffering. You can't memorize a response ahead of time but they came spontaneously when the person just tuned in to what was happening. And we don't need to hold them up as ideals, like, oh, I should be just like that. <laughs> That's, again, setting up an ideal, but it just points out that compassion is something kind of spontaneous like that. So, this is an, yeah, Marianne. I hope it's not um, well, to interrupt now, but I'm thinking of it, of all of this, and how it could be applied to a situation. Uh, and I don't want to talk about it too much, but it deals with Trump calling, uh, saying something about countries being uh, holes. But it makes me so angry, that, and I have stopped watching the news that much or politics that much because of them. But how can this be applied to something like that? Because I was thinking when you said um, wishing no ill will, that's hard to not wish. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people in this room are probably in alignment with that. <laughs> yeah, and then. Um, you know, to but we don't know everyone. Compassion, yeah. All of that. I mean, I'm meeting the other people with compassion. Well, in order to express what appears as quite a lot of ill will and cruelty, mm -hmm. when you have been, when you have expressed ill will or cruelty in your life, maybe not that to that degree, were you in pain at that time? I could have been, I don't know. Yeah, often we're blind to it, actually, and it's just reacting. But my sense is that when the heart is open and we're present and calm, there's actually very little desire for ill will or cruelty. And so if a person is in that state, they must be suffering a lot to be able to act that way. And so I don't know what caused all of that. We don't need to know, but there's a lot of suffering in this world. But I'm wondering how we could apply it to ourselves in that situation. This is one of those unique responses. So we tune in and we open to the degree that we're able. I don't know that we can completely open to all of that pain, but whatever's possible for us. And then if we have a sense of how can I meet this without causing additional harm, we don't want to do that, mm -hmm. what would arise? For some, um, there's a joining of a peace movement. For some, there's going on a three-month retreat to clean up their own mind a little bit more. Um, 
for some there's making monetary donations or various other things. So it doesn't have to necessarily it doesn't have apply to, to the specific situation. It doesn't have to apply to that specific situation. I mean, it's like meeting a person who's dying. We're not going to change that, but we can meet them in some way if we're in their presence, or if not, we hear people dying somewhere else. We may have some other response, but it's, it still comes from a unique position from our heart of something that springs forward. And um, this is a practice. That's why it's a practice. And that's why we're cultivating this intention today, the intention of wanting to help, essentially. Uh, and, and even more so than loving-kindness, so kind of why we started with that last week, this one has to start from within. If it doesn't come from a place of non-cruelty, it's going to contribute or compound what's happening out there. And we'll see that a lot of that depends on you know, the strength of mindfulness. And we can we actually be present for what's happening? This is the real thing. This is what our, you know, this is it. So I guess maybe what I'll do then is um, draw on an analogy that I started last week that some of you um, responded well to, which was this idea of the uh, the seed that gets planted, and the um, then there's some growth from that seed, and intentions are like seeding the soil, and then we're going to get, if we have you know, wholesome intentions, we'll get fruit from that. And you know, if we water them properly, we'll get more fruit, <laughs> like the way if you tend to plant, it can, uh, it can grow to fruition. So one thing to understand is that with any of the skillful intentions, so loving-kindness, compassion, or renunciation, at the time that we are in that mind state, negative actions can't take root. We can't actually do something, act out of ill will from a state of goodwill. It just, it can't enter, basically. The mind is filled with something else, and it, it can't get in. And there are some suttas that, um, that support this. Of course, this is meant to be checked in your own experience. But um, there's a... There's one that says, suppose there is a small boy or girl who since birth is able to dwell in the liberation of mind through compassion. So that means your mind is just completely filled with compassion. Later on, would he or she still perform unwholesome deeds by body, speech, or mind? This is the Buddha asking. And the monks say, surely not. And, you know, it sounds almost just like a silly conversation between the Buddha and the monks, but he's, he's making a point that if we regularly practice, maybe we haven't done this since birth, but if we regularly practice planting this seed of non-cruelty or of compassion, then um, it becomes increasingly difficult to perform acts or, or speech or thoughts even that um, come from a place of cruelty. It, just, it doesn't have an entry point, essentially. We've uh, planted so many compassion plants in the garden that there's no spare space for the non-compassion ones to grow, basically. Or there's another, um, there's another one from the Majjhima Nikaya. Suppose someone should speak in this way. I have practiced, cultivated, and made much of the concentration of mind by compassion, yet cruelty still remains having pervaded my mind. Such a one should be told, do not say this. Why is that? It is impossible. It cannot be that cruelty remains pervading the mind of one who has practiced, cultivated, and made much of the concentration of the mind by compassion. That is an impossibility. This is the release from all cruelty, namely, the concentration of the mind by compassion. So, you know, it's a little bit technical to talk about concentration. We don't necessarily need to be in a state of full concentration. We can substitute in that the cultivation of the intention of compassion in our mind at all times. It just sort of denies non-compassion the ability to get in there.
Yeah, so we can check this in our own experience. I was just reflecting on this, and I, I thought of a time, I, I also won't go into the details, but um, of a time when I didn't even consider that somebody might be sort of slighting me or trying to manipulate me a little bit. I, I just sort of guilelessly <laughs> went through a situation. And then later, when I thought about it, my mind came up with all these things like, maybe she had this other thing in mind and was actually, you know, um, you know, tweaking me a little bit when she said that and blah, 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 blah. My mind kind of took off. It was, obviously, it was a moment of unmindfulness. Um, but it occurred to me that, oh, okay, so what was happening is in the moment, my heart was very open and um, I was acting from basically a place of compassion or love and kindness. And it, there was just, it just never occurred to me that there could be some other possibility. It, it literally couldn't take root. And then later, when my mind wasn't in that state and wasn't especially mindful, all these thoughts could come in about that that weren't present at the time. And now it's very useful in our practice to be able to distinguish that those are thoughts about the past happening in the present moment when I don't have as much compassion going. If we can't distinguish that, then we might start to believe that thought trail, which can't be true because it's happening. It's it's happening based on memory. It's not. Uh, it's not real. It's not what's actually happening in the moment. So it's actually uh, this is an excellent awareness practice is to be able to distinguish the past from the present, essentially. Yeah. So you can check for yourself in your own experience if if you are really in a state of Open, open-heartedness, whether it's boundless, it doesn't matter, just any degree of open-heartedness, how easy is it for you to think, oh, that person's probably lying to me, or, you know, um, whatever it is, you know, it just, it just doesn't come in, or a sense of, I'm going to, I'm feeling very open-hearted and kind, and I'm going to be passive-aggressive with this person. It doesn't work, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. They're not compatible. So this is what I mentioned last time as the purification factor of the mind, is that if you, if you have your mind in one of these states where the intention is good, um, we are uh, making it more likely that that will happen and less likely that its opposite will happen. Conditioning, conditioning the mind positively. Okay, so are there any comments or questions? We already had one about that. Um, about compassion and empathy and planting these seeds of non-cruelty. And then we'll do a guided meditation when we're ready. Okay. So the, um, you know, the aim of this course is to connect with these intentions in our own experience and in our own heart so that to make sure we're really starting from within and not from an idea about what I should do. So let's settle in for meditation. So find a posture that is comfortable. There's no need to strain yourself during this kind of meditation. So relaxing and finding a posture where you can be attentive but also at ease. Closing your eyes if you'd like, just turning the attention inward, maybe taking a couple of deep breaths and on the exhale allowing the body to relax, shoulders to drop, the belly to soften, legs to stop any bracing, if possible. Maybe softening the eyes and the eye sockets. Inside the skull, allowing the thinking muscle to relax a bit. It's just a metaphor, but Often thinking feels like there's a tight fist inside the head, and we imagine just relaxing that, like softening so it's not gripped.
allowing the simple feeling of the body breathing in and out to be a home for the mind in the present moment. to go, so just opening to the present. Perhaps now bringing the attention to the area of the heart, center of the chest. Just checking in, how is the heart right now? However it is, is fine. It might be soft, relaxed. It might be a little bit achy or tight. Maybe it's hard to connect with it at this moment. Maybe even imagining breathing in and out of the front of the chest. As if the air could just pass directly into the heart. And just Inclining the heart toward softness. So a sense of openness or that fundamental value or worth that we talked about last time. trying to do anything with the heart or the mind or the body except just sit in openness and if it closes or the mind gets distracted, no problem, just open to that. Oh, distraction, that's the next thing, just flowing along. simple reflection. Please reflect viscerally if you can, so meaning how it feels in your body, on something that you know deeply to be true, something you've discovered in your practice or in your life. You know this is true. It could be very simple. Something that even if somebody said, no, I don't think that's true, you would know. You would just know inside. No, this is this is how it is. And feel the, the peace and the clarity of that genuine knowing that you have. You may reflect that there was a time in your life, perhaps, when you didn't know this, 
and you weren't living in alignment with this, but now you are, and it's much more beneficial, this thing that you know to be true. Consider that there are beings who don't know this. They don't know this. They haven't learned it. They haven't had the opportunity. And they are living out of accord with this deep truth, and it's causing suffering in their lives. from a very simple place there's a wish that others could know this too this wish when done selflessly and sincerely is a very basic form of compassion know the value of something and to want others also to know that value. If the self starts coming in and saying, I need to tell everyone, Settle back. Stay with a very gentle, open heart. Maybe allowing the breath to again become more prominent Settling into the physical feeling of breathing. cause of suffering is ignorance, not knowing how things work, not knowing what leads towards suffering and what leads away from suffering, not knowing the value of an open heart and of awareness. We know this from our own lives. When we are not in touch with that, we suffer. That's true for all beings. Sitting and breathing in the presence of suffering and not suffering.
So this, this way of seeing compassion draws the connection between compassion and wisdom. The wiser we are, that is, the clearer we are about what leads to suffering and what doesn't, the more effective our compassion will be because we'll be clearer about what is causing another person to be in a state of suffering and therefore we know more about how to help. What is wisdom? Somewhat circularly, it Mm -hmm. tends to be defined, it's sometimes defined as the ability to do what is good for self, good for others, and good for both. That is the definite, one of the definitions of wisdom, which sounds a lot like compassion. So we see they're not so different. Sometimes people think, oh, it's the mind and the heart. The word citta in Pali means mind-heart. They're not different. They're not actually different. It's true in other languages also. So part of effective compassion is the discernment to understand actually how to help. And then the other, the other piece that I mentioned earlier is that there's the non-identification, and that's also a form of wisdom, is to understand emptiness, essentially. We're not going into emptiness tonight, but the sense that um, it's conditions that bring about suffering. You know, the more we see that in ourselves, we see, oh, the reason that this is painful for me is because of these five or six factors have all come together, and you know, it, it's not about me personally. Um, it's the confluence of these factors. And then that helps us see the same in others. We don't see them as the, the source. Who are they anyway? But there are these factors that have come together and they're suffering because of that or acting poorly because of that. So Metta Sutta, one of the lines of it is, not despising any being in any state. can be a tall order, mm-hmm. but, um, but can we really say, under exactly those conditions, if my life had flowed like that, um, how would I, would I be different? No. <laughs> it's the conditions that brought it there. So, Compassion and wisdom together uh, increase the effectiveness of the compassion. So I was thinking that we would do some small groups at this point, like we did last time, so you have a chance to talk with other people in the class. Let me see how many do we have. I think we have 20, so let's make groups of four, five groups of four. Why don't you get into groups and then I'll give you the questions. So groups of four. So the, the question is to give an example, and I'll, I'll bring the bell between each of you so that each person has a chance to speak. Give a quick example of a time that you felt compassion that was really genuine. You were in touch with the suffering, you had an emotional response, and you wanted to act to alleviate it. Um, Just sketch the situation. The point isn't the story. The question is, how did that feel in your body, in your mind? You know, what was that? I keep doing this gesture. (laughs) What was that sense um, of coming from within and then an action moving out of you. What was that like? And if you can remember, to what degree was there a strong sense of self at that moment or not? Those are the questions. And each of you, just to give an idea, I, I would like each of you to speak for about two minutes. So it's not a long explanation. It's really more focusing on the feeling and the action that came forth. You may get ideas from what other people say. So whoever is wearing the brightest color, 
shirt can begin. And then moving on to the third person. All right, so gently winding down. You might thank your group members for sharing in that deep way. So, so that sounded quite heartfelt to me. You can come back into the larger group. Does anyone have any comments from that? Any um, thing that you realized or? discovered about how compassion feels for you when it's flowing from the inside out. That was interesting in our group, we touched on it in very different ways, like uh-huh. lots of empathy and yet like some of it was teary and some of it was just this warm expressive of like, let me love you. Mm-hmm. And another expression was very joyous and happy and witty. And it's just all these different ways of feeling it. Yeah. Compassion has many faces, mm-hmm. and it changes over time. You know, maybe sometimes we'll feel it a certain way, and sometimes a different way, and if we practice it for a long time, I think it really deepens, and so we tend to um, move into other ways of experiencing it over time. So there's no right or wrong way. Um, but it's useful information, right? To know what that feels like for you. Any other comments? Yeah. And that, and that it's a feeling, it's not a thought. It's definitely not a thought. Uh, it may include thoughts, um, yeah. and it's anchored in the body, right? That's an interesting word choice. Did that change anything for you and oh, yeah, how I the experience like I was? was? Doing it wrong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well. <laughs> I um, I don't know if that was their intention or not, but uh, that might say something about your <laughs> your mind. <laughs> um, but I like that choice of sending when I mean, you've brought up an important point of sending versus beaming. I don't know um Beaming is kind of nice because it sounds like smiling, like beaming, right? But it's true that actually in the in the early Buddha, early Buddhist understanding of the Brahma Viharas, of these heart qualities, the practice of them is pretty much is radiation, actually. I think she said be instead of be sending. being instead of sending. Yes. Ah being. I'm making a different point then. So yeah. Thank you, Heidi. Being in sending that also brings it closer in, as the radiation does, but that's not what was being said. So, yeah, so being it. Well, this is a little bit what we were trying to talk about, is what the mm-hmm. feeling of it is. It's in us. Because that's the basis, really, from which we can act. The challenge with these um, hard qualities that are about other people, you know, like love and compassion, is that we're we're so attuned to focusing on external things and focusing and zeroing in on other people, we can forget the basis of them, right here, in our heart. So it's really yeah, it's really just good information to start familiarizing ourselves with that. Yeah. So isn't that almost the um, the way it's become more effective? Because it's the commonality that you have with another human being, 
There is no self there. There's just two human beings. Yeah, well, if there are two different human beings, there is a self there somewhere. <laughs> but <laughs> the, definitely the common humanity component of it is of a reliable basis for compassion. It's because um, then we're acting from our connection and not from our separation. Even sometimes if we're wanting to be compassionate, we can accidentally do what's called the near enemy of compassion, which is pity. And then it's like, I'm here, you're there, you're suffering, it has no effect on me. <laughs> you know, it's like this sort of, it's, it's not really connecting with their suffering. But if we see it as common humanity, I mean, what is it that connects all human beings? Not race, not culture, not age, not gender. None of those things that separate us. It, it would be the fact that we all were born and grow old and we'll get subject to illness and we'll die. That's something that's common to all human beings. That's a reliable basis from which to stage our interactions. Not in a literal sense, like all the time thinking about that, but if that's where we're coming from, that understanding, our actions have a different character. I elaborated a little bit on what you said, but what you said is exactly right. It's that common humanity is the, is the basis. Yeah. It makes me want to practice and be really mindful about my compassion so that I'll be ready when the moment arises. You know, I don't, I don't really have these opportunities. I probably do. But I'm not. Yeah. But I want to be ready when I do. Because in my example, my feeling was striving to help or do something to help the situation when allowing it to flow. So I was selfing. Mm -hmm. So allowing it to flow, being really immersed in my compassion, or wise about my compassion. Mm. Yeah, and that's including you in the whole situation as, as is proper. Yeah. yeah, it's dangerous to become a helper, <laughs> to become the helper or the savior. So I just want to be aware of the time and ask if anyone has anything to say that would help them feel complete or anything else that needs to be shared. Can I just make an announcement about Donna tonight? Sure, but let me ask if there's any other comments with closing, closing the class. Yeah. Well, I guess the one thing... Um, that I have always kept in mind with, and this is from years of working with people who are dying, is that it's um, sometimes it's really easy to have compassion, and it just kind of flows. And then there's other people, it's not so easy mm -hmm. to have compassion. And then to have compassion for myself, when that's not the case. Yeah, when it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And who knows all the factors? You know, the mind, of course, that one, and I, you didn't say this, but yeah. I'll just say it for the benefit of everyone. The mind that wants to understand will try to construct some reason why it's not working in this case. Oh, it's because they're too grumpy or whatever it is. But we don't know all the factors so that combine when two people come together, some weird karmic thing. So, yeah. Just having compassion that, wow, it's hard to connect right now. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so as with last week, the invitation, if you want, is to um, remember that feeling that you had of compassion when you called up you know, some incident from the past, or if it was all too quick and you don't think you picked a good one, pick another one in, in, your, in your leisure time and 
really feel what it felt like to have compassion in that moment, and then see if you can call up that feeling at other times, um, and just see what that does for you this week. That sense that we're starting from within, from that point where we are connected, we are feeling something in our body, there's compassion, and then uh, acting from there. a good week. And then we can have Heidi. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.